0: But today we are in John chapter 7, and we're in a in a study of the first half of the book of John, where you get to about chapter 11, before we will change up and move on to another book of the Bible. Um, we are recording our third podcast. We have a new podcast where all the recordings of our lessons are going to be available, and you can share those with folks that, that have moved away or that have Uh, are not able to be in Sunday school because they're off-serving during this time. So I'm I'm a little bit excited about it. So it'll be there for for whoever uh, would like to give these lessons or listen and to learn along with us. And so here in John chapter 7, we have Jesus making a sudden appearance at the temple. And John often gives us a clue as to when things happened. John doesn't always go in chronological order, as we've talked about in the past, but but he does give us stories, and he gives them stories, us these stories with a reason, and we're going to talk about that more today. Like why is he's telling us this story? Um, it it's so that we can kind of put ourselves in the place of the crowd and ask some of the same questions that they're asking here. Do, do you like a good mystery movie? Now, I'll tell you, it's, it's a mixed blessing to watch a mystery show with my wife because she's so clever. She figures it out early and she doesn't usually spoil things. But if I ask her, she'll tell me and I'll say, "Nah, it's not that guy. It's always that guy. She just knows. And some people are good at picking up on a mystery and figuring out. And some people like me are just surprised when the mystery is revealed. Well, there's a mystery going on in John chapter 7. I don't know if any of you watched that show, The Mass Singer. But there's these people that they sing a song, but they're totally in costume, and you have no idea who it is. They, they're changing their voice as they sing so that you can't recognize their voice. And then people guess and maybe eventually figure out who it is, or they're totally surprised when they are unveiled. Well, here, as Jesus shows up in the temple... And already there's a lot of buzz about who this Jesus character is, this prophet from Galilee, this this person from Nazareth who now lives in Capernaum, well at least his family does, but now he has begun his earthly ministry, he's traveling from town to town, and we're getting out about this Jesus, and as we study chapter 7, we need to think back to chapter 5 when Jesus healed the disabled man, and that disabled man took up his mat at Jesus' command and walked away, something he was previously not able to do, on the Sabbath day, as you'll recall, and then that's where the friction began with the religious leaders, and that is something that's going to come up today, because we see a continuing narrative in John's Gospel that Jesus is doing what God sent him to do, and not everybody's happy about. it. Not happy about what he's doing and the way he's doing it. And it becomes, again, a point of conflict in the story here. As Jesus appears in a very, very, very busy place. So, title today, I don't always agree with the suggested title. But I certainly do today. It really, really grew on me as I as I studied these verses. He sent me. Is a phrase Jesus says three different times in these verses today, and we're going to see that that is kind of a theme as we go through understanding this. So we have three parts of this. We'll start 14 to 18. I will say that I very ambitiously added two extra verses compared to the suggested focus because I think verse 30 and 31 are very important, but whether we'll have time to get there or not. That's a big question mark. I totally understand why. We could have stopped in verse 29. But we see Jesus discussing his teaching and why his teaching was authentic. We'll talk more about that word later in verse 14 to 18. Then verse 19 to 24, a discussion about what it means to make a correct judgment. And that'll be an interesting topic for us to get into. And then we see crowd reaction in verse 25 to 31. As they consider what Jesus said and how to have discussions among each other. And then Jesus also enters that final discussion and as he guides them towards understanding what's going on and who he is that is speaking to them. A couple questions to have in mind as we go through these verses here. Number one, what makes Jesus different than other religious leaders of the world? Maybe you have some thoughts about that. Is Jesus just another religious leader? He's not just another rabbi to us, is he? But think about some things that maybe distinguish him from other famous religious leaders like Muhammad or Gandhi or Buddha. Or even some of the you know figures that we've studied here in Israel's history. And some of the prophets and priests and kings that we've talked about in past studies. What makes Jesus different than us? Any thoughts? He came back and did. He got up out of that grave. That's a big distinguishing factor, isn't it? That makes him different. But or were some other, even that before that, were there some differences. Go ahead. We know that now, but they didn't know that. So they didn't know. They had to exercise a little more faith than we do. Well, he was even unique for his time. He was unique. What are some things that made Jesus unique even before he went to the is It's his way of doing it. He did things different than other people, and people picked up on that. There's something different about him. We're going to see that in our lesson today, aren't we? What did John tell us about the origins of Jesus? What do we know about Jesus' beginning that made him different? he was with God. Was he he with was God? with God. John chapter 1. We'll talk about that again later. He, he didn't just... Uh, he didn't... <clears throat> Began to exist nine months before his birthday like we do. But he existed through all of time. And he was actually with God when the world was created. Unlike anybody else in the crowd. All right. So if anybody's going to pull rank, I was here when you were still in diapers. Jesus could have said that by everybody in the whole world, couldn't he? He could play that card anytime he wanted to. So there were some things that are different about Jesus. Now, this one I let you think about as you go through the lesson. What made it difficult for people to accept Jesus' identity as the Messiah? Because that becomes a big issue as we go through this. So be thinking about that as we progress. <clears throat> All right. So today we're going to look at a couple of things. And basically it comes down to this. Responding to Jesus, who is sent from God. He's going to tell us several times, God sent me today. So the crowd had an opportunity to respond to him, and that's what we'll talk about. Now, as we get into our focus verses today, starting in verse 14, let me tell you what's already happened. This event, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Booths, or as the Christian standard says, the the Festival of Shelters, was a time where all Jews were required to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, and they would have a week long celebration. It was one of the three annual feasts that Jews observed. And the Jews, post exile, were real good about observing these feasts. Maybe they didn't want to get sent into exile again. So, this is one thing that we're very good about. Didn't mean they totally re- realized or remembered the purpose of these, but they observed them. And Everyone took the journey, much like for the Passover to participate in this festival of shelters so by shelters they were actually to not live in their comfy homes however comfortable a jewish home was probably not as comfortable as our homes in modern day but instead of living in their permanent dwellings they made temporary dwellings they made a booth or a shelter and they lived in that for a week and what they were doing was they were commemorating the time they walked in the wilderness with Moses when they left Egypt and they didn't have houses. And for 40 years, they journeyed in the wilderness with Moses in between Egypt and the promised land. And when they got to the promised land and they conquered the promised land of Canaan and it became the nation of Israel, they built houses and lived lived normally again. But for 40 years, God took care of them even though they didn't even have a house to their name as they journeyed, and it was a remembrance of God's faithfulness and provision for them. So this is the time and the setting. Everyone's gathering in, but there's a catch. Jesus' family, his half-brothers, and, and Mary and Joseph, if Joseph was there, I'm not sure he was there, so let me not throw him in the mix here, but there was a. they were going to the feast, and, well, are you coming, Jesus? And he said no. Initially, Jesus did not go to the feast. Instead, and partly because people were very much looking for him at this point, because he had healed that disabled person back in chapter 5. That was about six months ago, we think, that. Was at the Passover, the first month of the Jewish year? And here we are. This occurred in month 7, so it was about half a year later. And But news had spread. And people were wondering, is Jesus going to show up in Jerusalem again and do something remarkable at this feast like he did over at the Passover? People were looking for him. Not just people who were curious about him, but the religious leaders who were upset that he had dared to heal someone on the Sabbath day. This terrible lawbreaker might show up again and make trouble. And so everyone's looking for him, and he doesn't show at first. But he shows up in the middle of the feast. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's jump now into John chapter 7, starting with verse 14. So, when the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus makes a sudden appearing and a very public appearing. There's crowds everywhere. right. Imagine we talk about the crowds at Christmas time when everyone went to Bethlehem for the census and there was no room in the inn. And there's always a crowd at the Passover. Very, very busy time. Okay? imagine taking a trip to Disney World in the summer. There's just people everywhere because a lot of people are choosing to do this. And then this was an involuntary thing. Everybody had to go to this. Everybody in the whole country. So there's people everywhere here at this festival. And in the middle of proceedings, halfway through the week, Jesus shows up. And what does he do? I love it. He begins to teach. All right? As a teacher, I really, I like this, right? Hey, I'm here. Let's teach. And Jesus was always teaching. Now, Jesus, far better teacher than I'll ever be because, I mean, he's seen heaven and I haven't. Like, Jesus could say so much. Uh, And so he begins teaching the people. Now, remember, this was Jesus. He was only 12 years old. He was having discussions with the rabbis, right? Jesus has this special insight, and it shows us that he's not just an ordinary man. He has heavenly insight. He knows something that we don't. And so he begins to teach the people, and this is something we see commonly in the book of John. The reaction to when Jesus does something is, they are amazed. It's amazing. And so he begins to teach, and it begins to lead to this question. This was a very Jewish question. How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? This reminds me, by the way, this is something that we see in the book of Acts when Peter and John start preaching. And it's it's written there that the, the Jewish authorities took note that these men had been with Jesus because they realized these people haven't been to Bible school or to Jewish school, right? These aren't trained rabbis who are sharing these deep thoughts about Scripture, where would they get it from? They realized the apostles had been with Jesus. They were his disciples, and that's where these insights were perhaps coming from. And here, when it comes to Jesus, well, they don't have a Jesus. This is Jesus himself, and he's new on the scene, and, and there's these questions. A lot of times, to establish the authority of their teaching, uh, a Jewish person would quote A rabbi from the past. And sometimes, even today, a preacher will quote something out of a commentary or share something, and maybe from another pastor, someone might say something. If I quote something for Billy Graham, well, that that would hold a lot of weight, because we all know that Billy Graham was a godly evangelist for many years. So they would often quote something from a rabbi they had trained under, and that would give legitimacy to what they were sharing with the people. It would give them clout. And it would say, "This is how I know this because my rabbi told me this, and I'm telling you this. This is what we this is what we know about God from the scriptures." But Jesus didn't need to hang his hat on somebody else's teaching. Again, he had actually been to heaven. He actually knew God personally. He was not dependent on any other man to to know about God. Um, so here he is, and As they're teaching, they can just see something's different about him. He's not quoting from other rabbis. He's not leaning on someone else's understanding. He's just sharing truth. And he, something's different about him. Like, the way he talks is not like all the others, teachers and scribes. This guy is different. So they recognize that. And now some of this question, now the crowd may have honestly been awed, but who is this guy and what? These things he's saying are just amazing. And how is this? He's not not a rabbi from the school. Some people may have been saying this in a positive light, but also some of Jesus' critics may have been saying verse 15 in a not so positive light. Who does this guy think he is? He he doesn't have a a Bible degree. He doesn't have a doctorate from our Jewish school of rabbi training. Who does he think he is getting in front of this crowd and saying anything at all? There's nobody. We haven't authorized this guy to teach. How do we even know he's saying the truth? So his critics could use us against him. He's not one of ours. He hasn't gone through all this rigorous training that we make our teachers go through. So who does he think he is anyway? So good or bad, people are noticing there's something different about Jesus. Well, John wants us to notice there's something about Jesus. He's not just a philosopher. He's not just a product of religious schooling. He's the son of God. There's something different about him. He has an authority and an authenticity to his teaching that nobody else has. And even today, I will tell you that I hesitate to say anything that isn't based on scripture. If you want a lesson, it's going to come from the scripture. Because if I give you my own ideas, I'm wrong as often as I'm right when I come up with something. I don't even get the the story of the mystery movie right. But the fact is that God is always right. And when we aren't sure, if we go back to what God has told us in the scriptures and what Jesus has told us directly, then we know we're going to be on target. And that's why we should never ever dare to change what God has revealed in the scriptures as far as what is right and what is wrong. Now we are gonna see in the story today that we do need to apply a little bit of common sense. Because sometimes we may see commands in Scripture that seem contrary to one another. And how can I do this and this at the same time? But as we see here that the Jews were so zealous about the Sabbath day that they were actually kind of trampling over some of the other commands God had given them to do. And there has to be some balance there between discerning God's purpose and all the instructions he's given us. And that is something we get into as Jesus begins to explain to them, how is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? And he says, well, my teaching isn't mine. I'm sharing the words of he, the one who sent me. So this is the first time in this story that Jesus tells them God sent me. This is my source of authority and this is why my words are authentic. They have been filtered through the opinions of man. And you know how opinions of man goes, like just bring up a movie and let people talk about whether it was a good or a bad movie. We won't, uh, Not many of you are Star Wars fans, so we won't go there. But some classic movie, this is the best movie ever, and then someone says, yeah, I watched that movie, I kind of fell asleep, but I didn't get into it. And you're like, what? That was the best movie. And Or political discussions or sports discussions who's going to win the game right there's lots of room for debate but with God God reveals truth Jesus is speaking truth from his father and suddenly there's no room for debate anymore that this is the authentic truth that Jesus is sharing and when that happens he says look If anyone wants to do his will, and there's a loaded question, do we want to do God's will, or do we want to just go to church and feel good about ourselves because we got up and we got dressed, we put on our Sunday best, and we sat in that pew, and we checked the box, and we're a good Christian. And if that's all of our life is about, we've fallen into the same trap that some of these Jews did. They had reasons to feel good about themselves. They attended the required feast, all three of them every year. They made them good people, right? Not necessarily. That is not what God wants from us primarily. He wants us to be involved in the life of the church, but it's so we can help people and so we can grow more like Jesus, not just so we can check a box. And we have to be careful that we don't get busy patting ourselves on the back and at the same time ignoring what God wants us to do. So Jesus said, If anyone wants to do his will, what do you mean we're at the feast that God told us to go? Yeah, but are you living, are you only doing something for God three weeks out of the year and the other 49 weeks you're living for the devil? Or do you actually want to do God's will every day? There's a huge difference between that. So if anyone wants to do his will, Jesus said, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on its own. He's saying, look, if you have a desire to please God, Look at what I'm saying and you'll realize what I'm saying is exactly what God wants you to do. The fact is it's coming straight from God through Jesus, the revelation of the Father. Jesus is the only one who's personally had a conversation with God outside of the conversations maybe that Moses had when he wrote The Law to Begin With. But Jesus had far more intimate conversations with God than any person ever had. He knows what God wants, and he's here to tell us, and that's part of it. If we're in doubt, go back to the word of God, and not just to get a list of rules and checkboxes, but to try and discern the heart of God, because God's trying to communicate to us, not just a list of rules, but his very heart. So, said, so look at what I'm saying. If you really want to do what God has for you, you'll realize that they match up, they align perfectly. There's perfect alignment there. And then Jesus starts to talk about motives, and that's where we begin to realize that living for God is not a list of checkboxes and then doing what we want, but it's a life of surrender. And as he talks about this in verse 18, he said, look, the one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. Did you know there's religious people that are really more interested in themselves than God? Isn't that shocking? (laughs) Not really, is it? So we see maybe sometimes a TV preacher wearing the fancy watch and the, and the great clothes and the presentation on video is very sharp and the church is beautiful. Does that automatically make that a godly man? No. Not necessarily. you got to listen to what he's teaching. And if he says, well, if you just send in that seat money, God will bless you, you better watch out because maybe this is all about money and not about God and you have to be careful. You have the prosperity preachers, you have the social justice preachers who are only interested in social justice and in their tribe, and they're not actually interested in serving God. Now you have some people that maybe are interested in both, but you have to discern the motives, and Jesus here is saying, look, people who speak on their own, instead of speaking God's words, those." People are seeking their own glory. If you're seeking the glory of the one who sent him, then you'll speak with integrity. Notice what he says in the verse of 18 here. He says, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, he's talking about himself. If you're looking for a perfect preacher, you're probably wasting your time, okay? Because there's no perfect people available for the church to hire. And even though we love our, our staff here and they're fantastic, it's not fair to expect them to be perfect. The only one we can really expect to be perfect 100% of the time is Jesus. Well, luckily, Jesus was here teaching, and he is not seeking his own glory. He is completely free of self-interest, like all teachers and preachers should strive to be. (coughs) And he generally is seeking the glory of God. And again, he's seeking the glory of the one who sent him. So there's another reference to it here, Jesus not directly saying it, but referring to it in verse 18. So... Jesus is seeking that. Jesus is glorifying God instead of himself because he's speaking with integrity and accuracy. Now, we as believers can do the same thing if we'll follow the Holy Spirit and if we'll stick to the word of God. One thing I love about our pastor here is always based on the word of God. But you walk in to visit some churches and you just get some kind of speech and there's no scripture anywhere to be found. It's all about philosophy and ideas that came from that person. And that's a red flag for me. I'm sorry. That's not why I go to church to learn what you think. I go to church to learn what pleases God. And that's a totally different thing. And Jesus was here to glorify God and to make sure that God's word was proclaimed. And that's what he's teaching. And that set him apart from those other rabbis who are all, well, my rabbi so and so taught me this about Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'm going to quote that for you. And that's not what Jesus was about. All about what God wants us to know. So that gets us through verse 18. And so let's look at the first thing as we as we, along with the crowd, take note of what makes Jesus different than all the other religious leaders in world history. Let's look at a cross-reference here because I didn't share with you the background of the festival of booths or the feast of shelters and as mentioned several times if you want the full details you really need to go to leviticus chapter 23 but i just want to read on this because this reinforces some things we said here out of deuteronomy chapter 16 is moses kind of summarized the the the, the laws and the rules that he wanted the people to follow when he was gone this was for that deuteronomy was the law the name literally means the second law, because he kind of gave the law again, not for the generation that had gone out of Egypt into the wilderness, but for their children that were actually entering the promised land. And so it's the second recounting of the law. And here we have a little summary of what Moses was instructing them. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 16, you shall keep the feast of Booth seven days And when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. Stopping there, just notice everybody was to come to the feast. Nobody was left out. Families, employees, everybody goes to the feast. That was the nature of these feasts. Everybody goes. And then in verse 15, For seven days you will keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now as we know, that's the Passover. The Feast of Weeks. Sometimes we call that Pentecost. And the Feast of Booths. And that's where we are in month seven, of the Jewish calendar, which, by the way, since their first month, Passover, is our March to April, the seventh month would be September to October. And as you noticed here, that's going to be right after the harvest. So they were to do the harvest. Then came the Day of Atonement on the 10th of the month. And on the 15th of the day of the seventh month, the Feast of Booths or Shelters would begin. Notice the last part of this in verse 16. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. They were also to bring an offering. All right? So this was an annual show up at the feast, bring your offering, do the feast of booths. This was a sacred time, and nobody was exempt. Every male in Israel needed to appear. No exceptions. All right? So this is the background where we have Jesus coming in. All right? The harvest is done. Nobody still has to bring in anything for the field. All the farming of the year is done. Everybody come now before the Lord and worship him. All right, so now our first item of the day that in verse 14 to 18 we see and we realize Jesus has authenticity and his source is God the Father. He's speaking the words of God. He is revealing truth about God and he is seeking to glorify God. And when we go to the words of Jesus, when we go to the scriptures, that is authentic truth. When we stand on our own apart from the scriptures and we aren't heeding the words of Jesus, that's where the error can creep in. So understand that it was Jesus revealing the truth of God that made him authentic. He wasn't talking about a God he didn't know. Unlike some of the rabbis, he really did know God. And if we're going to testify about God to people, we have to start with an honest, earnest relationship that we have with God and our testimony. The things that we have experienced with God and know are true from the scriptures. And those are the things that we can share with people that will change their life. And that is the model that Jesus gave us here. So realize why Jesus has authenticity. He's the son of God. He's been with God and he's speaking the words of God for the glory of God. We move on in chapter seven, verse 19 through 24. Again, I've got that split into two screens because there's a lot going on here as Jesus pauses his teaching here and answers some of their questions. He suddenly shifts here in verse 19 and that's why I broke before this one because as Jesus continues to talk, he says, didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? As you can see in verse 20, a big reaction to that. They were not ready for Jesus to ask that and say that. You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? Then in verse 21, Jesus resumes. I performed one work. And you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather... Judge according to righteous judgment. So here, Jesus refers back to what he did six months ago. He refers back to when he healed the, the, the disabled man, the paralytic, who was unable to get into the pool when the water was stirred and, and was frustrated. And for 38 years, he had suffered from this, this. Whatever it was, it made it difficult for him to move around. He wasn't able to get to the to the pool before others, he was, he was slow, and it had totally, totally disrupted his life. And Jesus springed that up. At first, the crowd doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. What do you mean? We're not trying to kill you. We're just listening to you talk, man. What do you mean? But for one thing, they weren't even really sure who this was, right? Who is, who is this guy, and what's his background, and how is he teaching this, this amazing stuff to us? And suddenly... Jesus turned the conversation, and he's really talking at the religious leaders. He's really talking about the ones who are still upset with him for what he did six weeks ago when he healed that man. And he begins to shed light on an issue, and the issue here is not that Jesus is in trouble. He's trying to get out of trouble. And it's not that he's necessarily trying to win over the crowd, because he's not. this is not a democracy where he has to win an election. But this is... Jesus uncovering hypocrisy and unfortunately even when we seek to do God's will this is a trap we can all fall into because we say we believe one thing but we act in a different way and this is exactly what the Jewish religious leaders were guilty of in fact this pointed question is why do you seek to kill me? And the statement before that was, you don't keep the law. Mm-hmm. Now that's the stinging question. It also goes back to the comment. story about uh, leaving the ox in the ditch. Yes. Yes. You've been reading my cross references ahead of time. Haven't you? <laughs> I believe you know the same story I was thinking of that as we said earlier, god expects us to apply some degree of common sense when i have noticed this anytime i think there's a contradiction in the scriptures now wait a minute how could that be true and that be true if i look into it eventually i find someone's figured out how those two things fit together and they really aren't so contradictory after all and i'm always amazed every time i think wait a minute that doesn't make sense to me that seems like a discrepancy there's it's always because there's something I don't understand. It's never that God got it wrong. It's always Scott, every time. And here, what might seem like a discrepancy, Jesus, how can you be healing people on the Sabbath day? If you are really a good Jew, you wouldn't heal people on the Sabbath day. Of course, he talked about that's not really the case, but that's the case that these religious leaders were making. And Jesus, a little bit on the defensive here, but he realizes I'm Jesus didn't suddenly realize this. He knew this all along. But he reveals, it's not that I have things mixed up. It's that you have things mixed up. Has the Lord ever had to tell you that? It's never that God got it wrong. It's always that we get it wrong and we realize it. And oh, yes, Lord, I messed up again. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. What was I thinking? I should have trusted you. I knew you were going to work it out. But I took it in my own hands. Like when Abraham, you know took his serious uh, servant and his wife and decided, I'm going to fix this problem not having it here. didn't work out so well. Um, God has the right solutions. And here the Jews were messing up. Moses had given them the law, but they weren't keeping it. They weren't the good Jews they thought they were. Yes, they were attending the feast and they were having it on a regular basis, which in ancient Israel's history, they weren't always real good about that. There was a lot that these modern Jews in Jesus' day, not modern to us, but modern in contemporary with Jesus, could say they were doing better than their ancestors. But unfortunately, they weren't following God's, command, God's commands either. And this situation actually made it obvious. Because if you're keeping the law, why are you trying to kill somebody? Is killing somebody against the law by chance? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. But they were so upset that already plans were in the works that they might, we, we're going to take care of this Jesus problem. And let's, maybe we just need to kill him. And That thought already, they were so mad, they already were ready to kill Jesus. They hadn't made formal plans. His hour had not yet come, as we're going to see in the next section. But the fact is, already that plot was afoot. Jesus said, why are you trying to kill me? And the people in the crowd didn't understand it at first, but as they gave them this context, instead of saying, you're crazy, or are you demon-possessed? They began to understand what He's talking about. He's not so crazy. Oh, that's right. This is the guy who healed that guy in the Sabbath, and the authorities weren't too happy about it. But the fact is, we have to be careful, because when we follow our own way, at some point we find ourselves going against God's purposes. And if you're going to keep the Sabbath day, And you get so mad about the Sabbath day that you're going to kill somebody, you might want to reevaluate which one of those two rules was really more important. If you had to choose one, maybe break the Sabbath day instead of kill somebody. Like if you had to choose, I think I would lean that way, as opposed to, we're going to keep the Sabbath day, we're going to kill this guy. Maybe that's not what God had in mind when he gave you all these rules. And so Jesus is kind of cutting to the chase as you're being hypocrites, Jewish authorities, because even though you're mad about me, and let's we'll talk about whether you should even be mad about me for healing on the Sabbath day. That was the rest of these verses here, right? But, but you want to kill me because I broke one of the commandments? That doesn't make any sense. That's hypocrisy at its finest. You're going to break one rule because you think I broke another? That's not the right way. And we have to be careful that we don't get so busy, as they say, majoring on the minors, that we totally miss the point. Didn't Jesus later on accuse them of of tithing their gum and their mint and then swallowing a camel? It's like you're so focused on the minor things, you're missing love and justice and obedience to God, which are the major things that God has wanted from you from the beginning. And so, as we get here to verse 21, he says, look, let's talk about why it's okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. Is that really Inconsistent with the law at all? Do we have to choose between following God's commands and following Jesus? Because if we did, that would be a big issue. But we don't. Because he said, look, even you know that you have to balance the rules that Moses gave you. And one of those rules was Jews were to circumcise their children on the eighth day. Well, what if that kid was born on a Saturday? Day one, day two, day three, day four. Day eight is a Sabbath day. So, do we circumcise the kid on the eighth day like Moses to us or do we observe the Sabbath day? Well, it seems like a quandary and she realized doing what God told you to do is not work. That's just obedience. God didn't give you the Sabbath day so that you wouldn't worship him on that day. He just didn't want you to do your ordinary work. He wanted you to rest. But if it's the eighth day, they knew that that should be an exception. And yes, on the eighth day, bring your children to the temple to be circumcised, just like Moses and uh, like Mary and Joseph did in the, in the Christmas story, right? They brought and they gave the offering and of the turtle doves and everything that they were prescribed in law. It didn't matter if it was a Saturday or not, you're still supposed to do that. Well, Jesus said, Look, you already know it's okay to circumcise on the Sabbath day. That's not what God was talking about on the Sabbath day. He wants you to still obey him and do good things on the Sabbath day. I healed the man. You think it's okay to do this thing which is just a ritual thing that only affects a small part of a baby. And I healed the entire man. I did something so much more important than bringing in a child to be circumcised. And you're going to criticize me for this? Like it's something God doesn't want? The fact is God got glorified when Jesus healed that man, didn't he? Don't use the Sabbath day as an excuse not to glorify God. So that was the thing. He said, look, you're being hypocrites when you criticize me for healing a man on the Sabbath day. Because there's nothing wrong with it. It's an opportunity to glorify God and to help somebody. Those are the kind of things we should do 24-7, aren't they? But the Jews had it wrong. They were so mad about the Sabbath day they wanted to kill Jesus, and yet he had done nothing wrong. Here's um, a reference, the rule from Leviticus chapter 12, where he said, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she'll be unclean seven days. And then on the eighth day, flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That was the rule Moses gave. And if we were naive, we'd say, well, that's the conflict with the Sabbath day. What do we do? But we understand that God's rules work in harmony. It was never meant to say When he said the 8th day, he didn't say the 8th day unless it's the Sabbath, then do it on the ninth day, did he? So obviously some exceptions to the Sabbath day, it didn't mean that you had to stay in bed all day. That was never what the Sabbath day was about. Now, the last verse here of that section, verse 24, Jesus said, make a right judgment. You're being hypocritical. Instead, you need to make a right judgment. And that might remind you of something that Jesus said in another gospel in Matthew chapter seven. Let's look at this reference. Now, the other story that Charlotte mentioned earlier, I think it's my reference I have here in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus said, You guys, if your ox falls in the pit, you or your sheep falls in the pit, as the story goes, you'll immediately take it out, even though it's Saturday, even though it's the Sabbath. And you won't you won't think twice about that because you know. You're not going to leave your sheep and have them die of dehydration in that pit all day just because it's the Sabbath. You're going to rescue that sheep. So that's one of the cross-references here as well. But here in Matthew chapter 7, let's talk about another time Jesus brought up judging. And it's the non-Christian's favorite Bible verse, isn't it? Judge not. Like, don't criticize me. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. Just be quiet, Christian, and leave me alone. That's the way some people interpret this verse. But I want you to see here, it's the same thing that we just saw in John chapter 7. Jesus is not telling Christians to don't judge. He's saying, don't judge hypocritically. And look at this in context, chapter 7, and as we compare it to what we had in John chapter 7. So here, As we take this story back to John chapter seven, the Pharisees were very happy. Uh, Jesus, let me take that speck out of your eye because you're, you know, you're you're doing these great works, but you can't heal on the Sabbath day, buddy. I'm sorry, but you're you're making a mistake there, and you're not following our rules. What's wrong with you, Jesus? That was their attitude. Well, Jesus didn't actually have a speck in their eye; they thought he did. But even what he was doing was 100% correct and after the heart of God. But what do they have? They have a log in their eye because they get so angry they want to kill him. They want to murder over this issue. Jesus never said not to make a judgment. Christians constantly need to make judgments about what's right, what's wrong, what pleases God, and what should I avoid. Those judgments are essential. But what you can never do is, A, you should never condemn someone, and you should never be hypocritical. It's not my job to condemn someone because God's going to judge them and decide where they go for eternity. I can warn them, if you don't repent, God said you're going to hell. But judgment is Jesus' job. Judging is God's job. But the scripture never, ever says, don't make it pass a judgment or make a decision about if something if something is right or wrong. It does say, don't be a hypocrite and focus on small problems of other people while you ignore major problems in your own life, you need to clean up your own house first before you go off addressing any kind of issue with somebody else. So yes, be slow to bring up things in other people's life and don't be a hypocrite ever. If you're not living right for God, don't bother telling anybody else that you live better for God, because that's hypocrisy and we all have to watch out for that. And that is the concern that is raised here. And as we go back to John chapter 7, he says, again, does he say, don't make any judgments? No. He says, judge according to righteous judgment. And in fact, that's a command. Jesus said, judge. Judge according to righteous judgment. Make judgments, make determinations about situations, but make sure you do so in a righteous way. Don't judge, according to outward appearances, the way that the religious leaders were criticizing Jesus over something that was superficial and unreasonable. All right, let's look at the final discussion here. As it all comes to a close in verses 25 to 31, but first, let's, as we finish this up, let me encourage you to reflect. Reflect on the hypocrisy of the critics' accusations against Jesus. And are we sometimes guilty of the same thing? Are we trying to take the speck out of someone's eye? And maybe there isn't even a speck. Maybe we just thought we saw something and we're ignoring the beam in our own. But also realize that as we stand for truth, we will receive the flack. We will receive criticism that perhaps is undue because people don't want to deal with their own hypocrisy. They'd rather attack you. So understand when we take a stand for truth, even if we are not being hypocritical judges and we're simply proclaiming that God said this is right and this is wrong, we can expect people to react much like these leaders did because it's so much easier to attack someone else than to deal with the beam in your own eye. And that we can see. That's a natural human reaction. And that not everybody reacts that way, but that's the way these religious... Leaders, They wanted to be think of themselves as good people, and they were not prepared to deal with the reality of their sin. And so they chose to attack Jesus instead of deal with their own problems. And that is something we see in the world today. And it explains a lot of the reaction we get sometimes when we try and share the gospel and what we believe to be right and to be wrong. All right, verses 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? They're getting it, aren't they? But look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from, yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me, is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man has done? Will he he won't perform more signs than this man has done There's a split reaction. And the fact is, the whole reason John shared this story with us is so that we could look at those two reactions and decide how are we going to react to Jesus. Are we going to realize he is the Messiah? Or are we not going to believe he's the Messiah? That's really the question. When Jesus proclaims God's truth, we only have two choices, to obey or disobey. And when we're presented with the picture of who Jesus is, People really only have two decisions to accept that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, or you might even say the sent one, or not. And they were confused, but they were beginning to think about it. And we saw that some people said, "It can't be him. We know he just, I mean, they're from Nazareth saying he can't be the Messiah. But we know he was really born in Bethlehem, right? He actually met all the promises and requirements about being the Messiah. But they only had partial information and some, of, some misinformation about him. And some people, there was this thought that where are they, where are they coming from? When Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. Well, let me just briefly explain where that thought came from. First of all, there's a prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 53. Look at it real quick. And as you look at these verses, I just want to point out, um, look at verse 2. This is talking about the Messiah, and you know Isaiah chapter fifty-three, talking about the suffering servant, Jesus, who would eventually go to the cross and die for our sins, fulfilling this prophecy. But look at verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I would argue that really the second part of the verse is being fulfilled right here. He's teaching like, Who are you? and who trained you? You're a nobody. You're a person of no reputation, but this idea that it came out of dry ground led to the thought: the Messiah is not going to have a family; he's not going to come down with Mary and, and his four brothers; that he's just going to kind of come out of nowhere. And so, how could Jesus be the Messiah? They're trying to put the clues together; I couldn't put it together. One other thing: if you look in Daniel chapter seven, there's a thought that Jesus was going to suddenly appear, like in the vision Daniel saw, like he would just. Hop out of the sky one day and become the ruler of Israel. And he wasn't matching their expectations. Remember, they're looking for a military leader as well. So they were having trouble, except that Jesus that showed up in the middle of the feast could be the one. Look at this in Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, they had this picture almost like we'd expect in a concert that the stage lights should come on and smoke should rise from the stage and it is big fanfare and suddenly the Messiah appears in the temple surrounded by angels with the heavenly chorus singing like we picture at Christmas. That's not the way he arrived. And that concert was in the fields with the shepherds. It wasn't at the temple in Jerusalem. And even here, he didn't come the way they expected. But on the other hand, I would argue, and I'm not completely sure, but maybe this very story was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, because guess what? He suddenly came in the middle of the feast and appeared to them at the temple, and they didn't recognize it because they thought it was going to happen this way, but it happened this way, but he's here. God is there in your temple speaking to you all of a sudden in the middle of your feast. Yes, it's the Messiah. Some were picking up on the clues and some weren't. But Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And as we see at the end of John, this is why John shared the story with us. In the epilogue, the last chapter of John, chapter 20, 30, and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And that day, some began to believe in him. And that was the purpose of Jesus coming to the temple that day, to glorify God and to reveal God to those who were lost, who were attending feasts but needed their sins forgiven. And that was the purpose of it all. So as we see this story, don't miss John's purpose recognize the signs of Jesus' authority. He's the only one who knows God experientially, who has walked in the heavens with God and come to report to us, even before he went to the cross and redeemed us from our sins. He's unique, and he alone has the authority to represent God to us. And we need to listen to him, and the whole world needs to listen. Anyone who wants to please God, you've got to. To heed the words of Jesus and recognize that He is the sent one, He is the Messiah. That's it for John chapter seven. Went a little long here. Some summary points here. I'll leave it up on the screen as we dismiss. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came for us. We thank you that you left the glories of heaven. And the presence of the Father, and you came to the earth to teach us and to show us who you are. And to steer us away from the hypocrisy that we so easily fall into when we try to be good people. But sometimes we don't live out what we say we believe. But you are the sent one. You came to show us who God really is and what God really wants from us. Help us to attune our lives to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we might follow your example of living the way God intends, showing your glory and the Father's glory by being different than the world around us. And Lord, may we share the truth that we know you, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and share him with everyone that we can. May you get the glory out of these verses as John and as you intended. And we thank you for showing yourself to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God. Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, thank you. And another, I have a prayer request. Uh, mm-hmm. my